you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Philippians, uh, chapter 3, very near the end of the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, but you would like to borrow one, we have a few uh, which we can lend out. So please just put your hand up, and uh, someone will come around and give you one. So Wendy, there's someone in the middle here, down here at the front. Thanks, Jody. We're going to be looking at Philippians uh, chapter 3. I'll read the whole passage, um, but we're going to be looking at the second part of it, really. Philippians chapter 3, Paul's saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, for it, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or even been made, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that God too will make clear to you. Only let's live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I've often said, often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends. Okay, last week, those of us who were here uh, will be aware that I was preaching not from this passage. I was uh, preaching from a passage in Luke, I think. might be Matthew. can't remember. Um, I think it was Luke. (laughs) Oh, it's so memorable. Um, And we were looking at the story of Mary and Martha. And uh, through that, we were seeing how God doesn't want us to impress him through our serving him and just doing things for him, uh, getting on with working and serving him. But he wants us to sit at his feet and spend time with him, just getting to know him, letting him 
get to know us. And our service to him, which will be there, will come out of being lovers of God. And it's important to remember that in context. Um, Paul talks uh, similarly, really, in terms of knowing Jesus in the start of this passage in Philippians. But uh, it's important to remember that as we look at this letter. Um, And Paul begins the chapter by strongly warning the church to beware of those who say, you have to do this, this, and this in order to know God. You have to be circumcised in order to know God, to earn favor with him. Paul's saying, no, that's not the case at all. Our glory is not in ourselves and how well we do ourselves, but it's in Christ Jesus. And our worship to Jesus is by the Spirit of God. So our righteousness and standing before God come through faith in Christ and what he has done, rather than from what we have done. Paul stresses that he used to think in the former ways. He used to be concerned about how uh, how, he, how well he stuck to the law, how, uh, good he, how good his standing was before God. And he says in verses 7 and 8, he says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ. And I compare everything a loss, consider everything a loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've lost all those things and I consider them rubbish. He sees them as rubbish compared to knowing God, being found in him, and seeing the righteousness that comes from Jesus. What he's saying is, look, if any, and I'll I'll say it today, if anyone thinks that you're a good enough person to be accepted by God, think again. Everything that you consider is your goodness is rubbish. It's dung, absolute trash. We cannot impress God by what we do. We just can't do it. He's not impressed Our righteousness comes from Jesus and from a relationship in him. So, let's move on and focus on on the second half of this chapter from verse 12 onwards and see what Paul's outworking of knowing God is. Is Paul working out this life of knowing God just through a life of leisure, sitting, putting his feet up and spending time with God? Just enjoying God's presence is that's what it's all about. Let's not bother doing any of these things. It's all God. It's all grace. Wonderful. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul's summary, uh, which you could have in, in a couple of verses here, you could say this is Paul's summary of what his outworking of that is. Verse 12, um, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And verse 16, he says... Um, Let us live up to what we have already attained. Let us live up to what we have already attained. I guess you could turn it around and say uh, that Paul is saying to the Philippians and through them to us, um, don't waste your life. Live up to who you already are. Be who you are. Last week in the meeting, um, Graham brought a word saying very similar things. Let's not waste the life that we have. Let's, let's press on. Let's come into everything that God's got. God's won it for us. Let's take hold of it. Let's grasp it. Let's not just sit back and, and ease our way through life. Let's take hold of this. Having seen what Paul's just said, though, about legalism and about trying to impress God and how that's no good, um, we might be surprised to see some of the words that he's using here. He's talking of strain. He's talking of effort. He's talking of hard work, pressing on. 
seeking the goal and, and seeking uh, heavenly rather than earthly things. And he's similarly strong in other parts uh, of the Bible as well, in other letters that he's written to people. If you look at 1 Corinthians and chapter 9 and verse 24, he says a similar thing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He's talking here about going into strict training. He's talking about beating his own body to make it his slave so that he isn't disqualified from um, what God's got for him. He doesn't want to stand and preach to others and then just have a life which doesn't match up to what he's preaching. And God look at him and say, well, you might say it, fine talk, but what about what you've actually been doing? He wants to beat his body. He wants to make it his slave. Now, part of us might want to react against this. We might say, Paul, aren't you just slipping back into your legalistic ways? Aren't you just slipping back into saying, well, this is what you should do, and you're setting up rules, and you're setting up standards for us to attain to, and we can't do it. It's all too much. Is that what Paul's saying? It doesn't sound a lot like Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. But Paul's not going back on what he said. He's not going back on what he said at the start of this chapter. He's not going back on what he says strongly all the way through his letters. And you see it through Acts. The book of Galatians. He, he doesn't want people setting up standards that you have to attain to, um, to, to do things. But he also knows that grace that he speaks of so much doesn't just mean a carefree and an easy life. He knows that sitting back taking things easy and waiting for heaven is just a recipe for sin to creep in and he doesn't want to disqualify himself we, uh, some of us saw that, uh, earlier this week we were looking at, uh, at, at the example of David and Bathsheba and how David sin crept into his life just when he was bored just when he was hanging about everyone was at war he's walking about on his rooftop doesn't really know what to do no one about And he sees Bathsheba. And temptation's there, and sin gets in. We can just take life easy, and sin can so easily get into our life and mess us up. And Paul is adamant, I don't want that. I'm going to beat my body. I'm going to make it my slave. I'm not going to be disqualified from that, from the prize which is before me, the the resurrection from the dead, and and a well done from God, the king of the universe. He's well aware of where he's at as well. Verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He knows that he's not there yet. And I've been very aware in preparing this message, uh, as as God's been sort of shining his light on different areas, uh, maybe in my life, it's just been highlighted to me how much I need to hear what I believe God is wanting to speak to us this morning. Um, And uh, in... In some of what I'm going to say, I'm very aware that people, especially people who know me, could just look and go, what are you like? You don't, you do that, you say that. I think, yeah, hands up, I do. I'm well aware, like Paul, that I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of this by any means. But I'm not preaching from me, I'm preaching 
and my life, I'm preaching from the Word of God. And this is what God's speaking to us. How many, how many of us need to hear these words? God's not wanting to bring condemnation this morning. God's wanting to exhort us to live a life which is coming into all that Jesus has done for us. Let's have a look at verse 13. He says about not considering himself to have taken hold of it, but he says this, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. He says, forgetting what is behind. How many of us live our lives, much of our lives, in the past? You know, you might ask people, some people, ask yourself the question, do you live your life mainly in the past or in the present or in the future? Most of your thoughts, are they about things that are yet to come? Are they about what you're doing right now? I don't think many of you are thinking about what's going on right now. (laughs) Are they about what's already happened? Many of us live in the past. We're thinking about things that have already happened. Many of us are trapped there. Maybe it is that we can't let go of the mistakes that we've made. Maybe we're plagued by guilt about things that have happened, and it just keeps coming back to us. And we think, oh, I know, I know, God's forgiven me of that, but we still think about it. We're still affected by it. God wants us to come into a place where we can be free of that. Maybe we can't let go of the things that other people have done to us. Maybe people have really hurt us in our lives. Terrible things, maybe, that have deeply affected us. And we can't let go. We can't forgive. We just think, I'm holding on to it. It keeps keep remembering it. God wants us to be able to receive forgiveness for what we've done and also to forgive others about the way that they've treated us badly. Otherwise, what's going to happen is we're going to dwell in the past. Our lives will be rooted in the past. And we'll become the things that we hate about others in our lives. Maybe we've been badly treated by our parents. Maybe we've been brought up in such a way and we're dealing with hurts because of that. And we think, I'm not going to be like that as a parent. I will not be like that. And everything, oh, I won't be like my mum did. I won't be like my dad did. We're focusing on those things. But because we're focusing on those things all the time, as we're thinking about them and dwelling on them, that sort of thing comes out in our lives. It grows up because that is where our mind is. Proverbs 23 and verse 7, there's uh, the alternative translation. There's a couple of different uh, translations of that verse. And most of you will be in the footnote, but it's 23 verse 7. It says, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. The things that you think about are going to deeply affect what you are like now and what you will be like in the future if that isn't dealt with. Dwelling in the past affects your future. You, you might be aware of it um, just through simple things in life, such as sporting events. You see... Um, uh, I, I play squash, and uh, we've got a team uh, squash thing going on over summer, and so I'm encouraging my team, they're playing a match, playing against someone else. So I might see someone in my team playing really well, and then he gets a a point which goes badly or makes a silly mistake or gets an umpire's call against him, and he starts thinking, oh, I can't believe it, and he starts focusing on that. And I'm thinking, oh, no, as as the captain, I'm trying to encourage them. Forget about that now, it's gone. 
You don't want to be thinking about that. Next point. Come on, get straight back into it. But sometimes you can see them. Oh, no, I've made that mistake. Oh, that point, I'm really annoyed about that. And then they lose the next point, and the next point, and the next point. You see it in football matches, don't you? Teams which defend really well and against you know, someone playing Manchester United. They've defended really well until about the 80th minute, 85th minute. And then a goal goes in. And they just go, oh. And they can't. They're thinking about that goal or a, a decision that the referee's made. And then another two goals go in. Because they're not thinking about what's to come. They're thinking about what's gone. And it's too late. It's gone. You can't go back. You can't change that. But what can be changed is the future. Don't dwell on the past. Paul says, come on. Put the past behind you. Forget what is behind. Press on towards the goal that is ahead to win the prize. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. He says, let us live up to what we have already attained. Verse 16. Let us live up to what we have already attained. When we're born again of God, we are a new creation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And God calls us by new names. He tells us in Romans 6, uh, that chapter, that we are dead to sin. He says we are now alive in Christ. He says we are slaves, not to sin, but to righteousness. Throughout the Bible, it calls us saints. And you may say, I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel as though I'm dead to sin uh, and alive in Christ. I don't feel that now I'm a slave to righteousness. I don't feel all of these things. But God is saying to us, but you are. That is what you are. Once you come into a living relationship with me, once I have forgiven your sin and wiped it clean because of the blood of Jesus, that is what you are. You might not feel it. Even some of the things you do might not seem as though they show that. But the truth is, that is what you are. I am declaring that over you. And what God declares that we are, that is what we are. It's like God giving us a new name. We saw last week that names are very important. They're given not just as a name, a random thing, but to say what we are. So when Adam named God's creatures in Genesis, uh, early part of Genesis, he was saying what they were. He was saying something about their nature. It's worth bearing in mind, actually, when you're naming children, your children, not someone else's, when you're naming children... Um, that, that God gives you that responsibility. And to name them, in some way, declaring what they will be. It's almost a prophetic declaration of something that the children will become. We see this thing about names in the Bible quite a lot. This, uh, and, and God changes people's names all the time in the Bible. So we see Abraham uh, named. He used to be called Abram. The word Abram meant exalted father. He was renamed by God Abraham, which means father of many. That name wasn't given to him after he'd had lots of kids. It wasn't like, oh, you, you know, changing it, father of many now, I'll, give you, I'll change that name. It was given to him before he had any children. And it was prophetic that he was going to be the father of many who came from him, children of Abraham. That name said something about him. He lived up to it. Jacob. A name in the Bible which means deceiver. 
And that was what he was. You read about Jacob's life in the Old Testament. He was not a nice man. He tricked people. He deceived people. He lived up to his name. And he describes him wrestling with God in the Bible. And he says, I won't let go until you bless me. What was the blessing that God gave Jacob? It wasn't lots of land. It wasn't lots of wealth. It wasn't things like that. He gave him a new name. He gave him the name Israel. Jacob could have have said, wrestled with you all night. Just give me a new name. What's that about? No, it was more than just getting a new name because he was getting the name Israel, a prince of God. No longer was Jacob going to be a deceiver. He was going to be a prince of God. He was released into what he was going to become in God, the father of a great nation. Simon, in the New Testament, was renamed by Jesus Peter, meaning rock, uh, before becoming the rock on on which God built his church. We see it all the way through the Bible. All of these people needed new names before they could walk away from who they had been. They were given something. God said, this is what you are. And they walked into it. And when we come into a relationship with God, which is far more important than having a, a change of physical name. I mean, I said there's some significance in that. But far more important are the names that God gives us as his people. Saints, redeemed, righteous. And Paul's saying, leave the past behind. Leave your sinfulness behind. Leave what you were and live up to what you have already become in God. Live up to it. Let's live up and attain it. We can do it, but it's not easy. It's not just a case of it happening. It takes strain. It takes effort. It takes a dedication to press on towards the prize. But it comes out of God's grace. And Paul brings a warning in verse 17 of the dangers of slipping into the ways of the world, into the ways that other people live, in the pattern of this world. How easy is it to do it? He says, join in my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. But he says, as I've often told you, many live as enemies, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God's their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. How easy is it to slip into just earthly things and say and do things that you just think, "Ah, that's not what God wants for me. I found this uh, the other week, last week, I think, the week before. Some of you will know, uh, one of my hobbies, I don't know, is I I quite like to appear on TV quiz shows. It's a weird hobby. Um, (laughs) So I was down the other week filming filming a program uh, a quiz show on which was going to which is going to be shown in a couple of weeks, and um, <laughs> and on these shows the, the presenters ask you all sorts of questions and you don't quite know what they're going to say, and um, so they, they say things like oh what you know what are you going to do with the money uh, if you win it, and uh, it's, that's a difficult question to answer because think mind your own business, um, <laughs> my money I'll do what I want with it, <laughs> I thought I better not say that. <laughs> wouldn't look good. Um, and so the, the kind of standard thing that people tend to say, loads of people say it, is, uh, is to say, oh, yeah, probably have a nice holiday. And so I'm there. This, it's all been filmed. And the question comes. I didn't, didn't really expect it uh, particularly, but I didn't know what to say. But what are you going to do with the money? And so I said, oh. And then you just find yourself saying the same old thing. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah, prob- 
probably spend some of it on a, on a holiday. And uh, the presenter said something like, oh, fantastic, yeah. And then I found, I mean, what I'd said was bad enough because I was just making something up. But then, but then the presenter says, oh, yeah, fantastic. And I find myself saying, oh, yeah, live for the holidays, that's my motto. Thinking, <laughs> no, it's not. I just, uh, to be honest, I, I felt, it, as soon as I'd said it, I just thought, what an idiot. <laughs> what am I saying? And um, everything's carrying on. But I'm just focusing on this. And, uh, and then I'm thinking, oh, my word, this is going out on TV. <laughs> People are going to be thinking, that's what I mean. And uh, it served me right, because they then start asking me all these questions in the quiz. And I wasn't even thinking about it. I'm just thinking about what I've just said. And so I hope you don't watch it. But my mind just goes totally blank. It's as though my mind goes blank for about 15, 20 seconds. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know, pass, pass, I don't know. I didn't know any of that. Because I'm thinking about this stupid thing that I've just said. I want to apologize on behalf of anyone who watches that program. That is not what I think. I do not live for the holidays. But you, you get into it. You, you say things. And we can say things. And we can do things. Which are not who we are. And we can feel, oh, that's not right. We can feel that sense of nagging. It doesn't sit comfortably with who I know I am in God. But we say it because of who we're around or because of, of what we're doing. It happens. <laughs> But that's not who we are. We can end up spending our time on trivial, inconsequential things, things that idle our lives away, but they don't enhance our relationship with God. Or we, or we can slip into sin. Piper, John Piper says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of holiday on the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased with the things of this world. And Paul in verse 18 calls those who live this way enemies of the cross of Christ. Those with their mind on earthly things. It's interesting that he doesn't start listing all the different things that people do. He doesn't say, oh, some people they're addicts, some people they're, they're fornicators, some people they're idolaters. Because we can, if we start getting individual things named, we could sit back and just think, oh, that's not me, I don't do that thing. But he just, he just generalizes it. People whose mind is on earthly things, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. Paul's actually saying, um, you know, I'm warning you against the underlying sin of just pandering to yourself, just looking after yourself, just satisfying yourself with, with worldly pleasures. To one person, it might be sexual sin. To another, it might be gossiping. To another, it might be just lying in bed all day. I don't know. Lots of different things. But even the most mature Christian needs warning about this. Paul's saying, I need to take hold of it myself. I'm not there yet. It's important, again, I'll just stress, that we don't get hung up on seeing these things from a legalistic point of view. It's not as though we're saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Should do this, shouldn't do this. So the question, what's wrong with this activity, is not a good question. If we look at things we're doing in our life and say, well, what's wrong with that? That's not the question that we should be asking. The question, the better question, is 
what glorifies God in this? Is there anything that I'm doing in this which glorifies God? Paul addresses that in, in 1 Corinthians 10, where people are talking about, well, it's okay to do this, isn't it? And some people are saying no, some people are saying yes. Some people are being damaged by some of the things that people are doing. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23 says, everything is permissible. He's quoting what other people are saying there. Everything is permissible, but then Paul's saying, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible, yeah, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. And um, he's saying in there, yeah, things might be all right. Things might not be outlawed in that sense, but not everything's a good thing to do. And he follows it up in verse 31 of that passage in 1 Corinthians 10 by saying, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If we begin to ask the questions, how will this help me treasure Christ more? How will it help, show, how will it help me show people that I do treasure Christ? How will it help me to know Christ? How will it help me to display Christ? Then we're much more likely to avoid the fleeting pleasures of this world. Because God did create everything and thought it was good. And therefore, everything can be used to magnify and glorify God. Money can, sex can, work can, relationships with people can, sport can, the internet can. Doesn't necessarily mean that everything is profitable. Doesn't necessarily mean that everything is beneficial to do. But they can glorify God. I found a very interesting article, again, by, by John Piper. I was reading quite a lot of Piper's stuff this week. Um, he wrote an article uh, on the internet, a blog, about why he um, tweets, <laughs> uh, if you understand what that means. <laughs> He's not some sort of bird. He doesn't go around and go, tweet, tweet, tweet. He uses Twitter, uh, which is uh, one of the things on the internet, such as uh, Facebook, MySpace, all of these um, kind of social networking sites. John Piper... Uh, outlines why he tweets, why he uses Twitter. This is what he says. I'll I'll read this out because I I thought this was really good. So this is all John Piper. I see two kind of responses to social internet media like blogging, MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter, and others. Some people say these media tend to shorten attention spans, weaken discursive reasoning, lure people away from scripture and prayer, disembody relationships, feed the fires of narcissism, cater to the craving for attention, fill the world with drivel, shrink the soul's capacity for greatness, and make us second-handers who comment on life when we actually ought to be living it. So we should boycott them and write books about the problem, but not blogs. The, the other response says, yes, there's much truth in all of that, but instead of boycotting them, let's try and fill this media with as much provocative, reasonable, Bible-saturated, prayerful, relational, relational, Christ-exalting, truth-driven, serious, creative pointers to true greatness as you possibly can. There's dangers, dangers everywhere, yes, but it seems to us, to, to him, that aggressive efforts to saturate media with the supremacy of God, the truth of Scripture, the glory of Christ, the joy of the gospel, the insanity of sin, and the radical nature of Christian living is a good choice for some Christians, not all. He says everyone should abstain from some of these media. For example, we don't have a television. Then he comes on to Twitter. Now, what about Twitter? He says, I find Twitter to be a kind of taunt. Okay, truth lover, see what you can do with just 140 characters. 
Your mission is to spread a passion for the supremacy of, of God in all things. Well, this is one of those all things. Can you magnify Christ with this thimbleful of letters? You're only allowed 140 characters uh, in a Twitter thing. So Piper says, to which I respond, the sovereign Lord of earth and sky puts camels through a needle's eye, and if his wisdom see it meet, he will put worlds inside a tweet. He says, so I'm inclined. So he says, so I'm not inclined to tweet that at 10 o'clock in the morning, the cat pulled the curtains down. He said, but, and switched the light on. But it might remind me that the Lion of Judah will roll up the heavens like a garment and blow out the sun like a candle. He said, that tweet might distract someone from, from pornography and make them look up. So he's taking something and he's saying, could be used for good, could be used for bad. I'm going to see if I can use this to glorify Christ. It's not saying, Facebook, terrible, Twitter, awful, shouldn't, shouldn't go near them because they do all these things. He's saying, yeah, they do. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. You can easily get sucked into it. But you can use them to glorify God. You can use them to be Christ-exalting. That's just one area. How many others are there that you can think of and apply in our own lives? Here's a few questions. Your relationships. If you're in a relationship with someone, maybe you just started going out with them, or even just a friendship, ask yourself this question. Is this relationship magnifying Christ? Am I glorifying God more since I've been in this relationship than I was beforehand? So again, it's asking a positive question. It's not saying, you get the defense of, well, what's wrong with this relationship? Don't know. Is it glorifying Christ? Is it helping you magnify God? Wives and husbands. Wives, are you focusing on being a suitable helper to your husband? Is, is your husband more able to serve and glorify Christ than he was before you married him? Interesting question. Husbands, are you leading your wives and loving her as Christ loved the church? Are you glorifying God more now than you that you're together than you were when you were apart. It's interesting, marriage, isn't it? Marriage isn't just, marriage isn't just a, a plan for us to be happy together and just be some insular thing. Marriage is God's plan for working together in his kingdom, to actually work and do something to glorify him and to bring about his kingdom. So it's, it's not just about us. Families are not just about us as an insular family. It's about how God is wanting to use us to glorify him together. We can do more together than we can do just as individuals in those circumstances. But it could be, become something that takes you away from God. You can easily do that depending on what you focus on. That's why I get nervous when I hear some couples who are engaged and they say, actually, I'm going to take our first year, we're going to just step back from things a bit. We're just going to spend time with each other and we're going to step back from serving. And you think, God created your marriage to serve him. God created your marriage to glorify him. It was to be an outward working. That's what he did right in the Garden of Eden. He got Adam, and he says, you need a suitable helper. What for? Not to cook his dinner, but to, to, to work together in the garden, to glorify him. Is our life focused on magnifying God, or are we pulled this way and that by different demands of work, family, friends, hobby, entertainment? Bearing in mind that you can magnify God through those things. 
but it's very easy for them to control us because pressures are real, aren't they? They're real. Family wants us to do certain things, especially um, families who don't believe and not, not Christians. They'll say, oh, we want you to do this, this, and this. They'll put these demands on you. Friends will be the same. Work will say, oh, you've got to put the extra hours in. TV and the internet will shout out to you, there's lots here. Come on, entertain yourself, feed yourself. You need to relax. You need, to, you need this, that, and the other. Where are we standing? Are we just being blown about and pulled by all of those things? Or are we saying, no, we're going to press on. We're going to take a stand. We're going to come into what we've got. None of that means pulling ourselves out of the world. It doesn't mean never seeing families. It doesn't mean we can't appreciate the things that God has made. It doesn't mean coming to more meetings. It doesn't mean avoiding the responsibilities that God has given us, um, which could be any number of things. It could be looking after children. It could be whatever. God created all those things as good. But we need to look up and beyond them so that our minds are not on those earthly things but are on heavenly things. I want to encourage us this morning to take stock of our lives, free from any condemnation, but just be exhorted by God to let's live up to what God has won for us. Let us live up to what we've already attained. Let's not waste our lives. And what is a wasted life? It isn't necessarily just a sinful life. It's easy. You can be a Christian and waste your life. Maybe you just say, I'm not that bothered. I'm not that bothered about making a difference. I just want, I just want people to like me. I, I just want a good job with a good wife and, or a husband and a couple of kids and a nice car and some weekends where we can have a few friends around and I can retire and have a nice time then and, and die quickly and easily without a lot of pain and go to heaven. That would be great. Thank you very much. That, that might be what we think. We can slip into that way of thinking. I, I'm there a lot of the time. Again, Piper says, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family? So there's no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no fraud, just lots of hard work during the day, lots of TV and PG videos in the evening during quality family time, and lots of fun stuff at the weekend with church woven in. This is life for millions of people, he says. Wasted life. We were created for far far more. God has got a call on our lives. God has got a call on our church. He's speaking to us promises. He's saying, this is what I want to do in and through you. This is who you are. This is who you are. Let's live up to what we have already attained. Paul says one thing matters in verse 8 of chapter 3. One thing matters. Knowing Christ and gaining Christ. Everything's a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. And I consider them rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's all that matters, to know Christ and to gain Christ. It's not about trying harder. Please don't go away today thinking it's about trying harder, it's about doing more, it's about extra pressures. It's not what we were looking at last week. It's about who we are in God. It's about knowing him. It's about loving him. It's about hearing his voice. It's about serving him joyfully in all that he gives us to do. Let's live up to it, brothers and sisters. Let's become what we are. Let's not waste our lives, but let's live it to his glory and receiving mercy and forgiveness for when we mess it up. And he says, it's okay. 
going to stand you up again. Be who you are. Forget it. It's in the past. It's in the past now. I've forgiven it. Don't dwell there. Let's press on. Let's press on together as God's people.